Hey, Rarecast listeners, Global Genes Next 2021, A Time for Resilience and Ingenuity, is now available to download. This is our annual report on the major developments in rare disease and looks ahead to trends that are reshaping the landscape. To get your free electronic copy, go to globalgenes.org and look for a link to the report on the homepage. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash 2021 next report. The electronic version is free. On-demand print copies can also be ordered for a fee. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Posada Therapeutics is perhaps best known for its immunology cell therapies in development, but the company's platform technologies are also being used to develop a growing pipeline of gene therapy candidates. While the most advanced ones in this pipeline use viral vectors, newer candidates make use of a non-viral nanoparticle vector. This technology can increase the payload of the gene therapy, avoid issues of immunogenicity, allow for redosing, and deliver manufacturing advantages. We spoke to Eric Ostertag, CEO of Poseida, about the company's platform technology, its gene therapy pipeline, and its efforts to move beyond viral vectors. Eric, thanks for joining us. Hi, Danny. My pleasure. We're going to talk about Poseida, its proprietary technology platform, and its efforts in gene therapy. Many people may know Poseida for its work in cell therapies. There's some overlap in the technology you use that cuts across these modalities. I thought, though, we could start with your piggyback DNA modification system. This is a technology that delivers genetic cargo into cells for your CAR-T therapies. How does it work? Yeah, good question, Danny. So there's actually three major categories of technologies that we use, and we can kind of mix and match these technologies in a lot of different ways to do essentially anything in vivo or ex vivo gene therapy. And CAR-T, as you mentioned, which we're known for, is really just one form of ex vivo gene therapy. The, the first category is DNA delivery. So how do you take a therapeutic transgene and get that stably integrated into the genome? And there, our workhorse technology is piggyback. I'll just briefly mention the second category is gene editing. We do have our own proprietary gene editing technology called Cas Clover. And then the last category is if you want to get these things into the body in a specific cell or tissue, whether it be piggyback for gene addition or Cas Clover for gene editing, then you need to package them in what we call a gene delivery tool. And there, there we have both nanoparticles and also uh, some AAV technology or adeno-associated virus. So thinking in terms of of gene therapies, how do these technologies move from cell therapy to gene therapy? How do they work in a gene therapy construct? Yeah, first of all, let me tell you about what piggyback is and and what it can do. And then there there are differences in in terms of ex vivo outside the body gene therapy versus in vivo gene therapy 
in terms of what the major advantage is, but some of them are shared. So first of all, piggyback is a DNA transposon. It's found in nature. Although we have souped this up or made it hyperactive, we call it super piggyback. And because it is all a nan, it's all a nucleic acid-based technology, you've got a DNA component. And then in the case of uh, T cells, we put it in the enzyme that moves it as an RNA component. So it's all non-viral. And that makes it really easy to work with. I sometimes joke, although it's true, I could teach a, a high school kid how to use this over, over the course of a weekend. It's very versatile. It works in every tissue, every cell type that has ever been tested. It works in dividing cells, non-dividing cells. You don't need DNA replication to get integration. So it's very versatile. It's efficient. It's actually more efficient at delivering DNA into T cells, for example, than the retroviral technologies, lentivirus or gamma retrovirus. The cargo capacity is huge, meaning how big is your transgene you can put in there. People have delivered over 200 kilobases, which is easily 20 times the cargo capacity of the retroviral systems. It's got a really nice safety profile. It's non-mutagenic, non-oncogenic. And being nucleic acid, it's pretty easy to make. You don't have to make GMP virus, so you can get to clinic more quickly, and it's a lot more cost-effective to manufacture. Okay, so the major advantages. First of all, let's focus on ex vivo, which is, in our case, the T-cell or CAR-T applications. One of the not-so-obvious advantages is that because it's so versatile, it can insert in what's called a resting T-cell, meaning we do not need to activate that T-cell. And once you activate a T-cell, it starts to differentiate. It starts to become more mature. And when you think about that in the context of CAR-T, there are some really interesting attributes you can get from going into a resting T-cell, particularly one called a stem cell or TSCM cell, that gives us a very strong correlation with best responses in the clinic. It gives us a really unique and, and best-in-class safety profile. And we think this is even a, a key or the key to getting CAR-T to work in solid tumor. Well, the viral technologies are almost completely excluded from the cell type. You have to activate a T-cell even to get infection with a lentivirus or with a retrovirus, but this technology piggyback preferentially transposes in that very desirable cell type. So we actually increase the percent of TSCM or stem cell memory during our manufacturing process. In vivo, meaning taking our technology into the body to a specific location or, or tissue, the advantage is a little bit different. And here, when you compare it to all the other technologies that are out there, most of them are non-integrating. So the standard AAV, adeno-associated virus technology, does not integrate into the genome. Most of the nanoparticle approaches will deliver an RNA, so it's transient. It does not integrate into the genome. Piggyback can safely integrate into the genome, and so that gives you potential for single treatment cures. You could give one injection, it goes in, it does its thing, and it doesn't matter how much that tissue or that cell divides or how, how long the human ages, it should give you long-term stable expression in all of those cells and all the descendants of those cells. And when you think about it, that's a big deal for congenital diseases, especially metabolic liver disease, because most of those diseases manifest in the pediatric patient population, especially the more severe disease. 
and you cannot touch that with, for example, standard AAV gene therapy. You're working on a, a number of gene therapies that are preclinical programs right now. I want to talk about a few of those. The first is OTC deficiency. What is OTC deficiency? OTC deficiency is a metabolic liver disease, and the gene is ornithine transcarbamylase. This is a enzyme, or the gene encodes for a protein that's an enzyme, in what's called the urea cycle. The human body has a lot of waste products that it would need to eliminate or else they can become toxic. And, and that's one of the jobs of, of the liver. It, it will eliminate toxins. One of the most simple toxin that your body can create is just nitrogen. There's excess nitrogen that you take in from your diet, uh, protein, but other sources, and you incorporate some of that into your body, but then you, you will end up with excess nitrogen. And if you can't eliminate that, that, that can be toxic. So the, the form of the nitrogen is ammonia, and that is eventually, through this urea cycle, converted into urea, which is then excreted in the urine. So if you have a deficiency, a defect, an enzyme that uh, does not work in this pathway, and there are several, OTC is one of them, you will get a buildup of ammonia and depending on how severe the genetic mutation is, this can actually be fatal. This can cause neurological disease, uh, but if, if the ammonia levels get too high, it, it's actually fatal. So um, pretty severe disease in, in some children. Um, in other patients, particularly women, it can be uh, less severe, and those patients can make it to adulthood. So it's an X-linked gene in case anyone's wondering, and that's why it tends to be more severe in the male population. Now, what treatment options exist today? Unfortunately, not, not many. The, the first option for all patients, but for the most mild patients, would just be a dietary restriction to, um, among other things, restrict your, your protein intake to try to keep the, those nitrogen levels low. But beyond that, there are not really many pharmacological interventions, really just two, and they're both what are called ammonia scavengers. They will get that excess ammonia and then kind of push them through an alternative pathway so that they can be secreted. But those are not without their problems. They don't always work 100%. They can have side effects. They're expensive, several hundred thousand dollars per year for treatment. Um, it turns out the person who's leading this particular program within Poseida, Bruce, Bruchard Smith, was the guy who developed one of those two drugs. Um, so he, he'll, he would certainly tell you there is a big unmet medical need uh, for these patients. Now, if, if they have the more severe form, that, that's not going to help them either. They actually would need a liver transplant. And of course, liver transplant has its problems because it's not always available and there's a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with liver transplant and of course costs associated with liver transplant. But the nice thing about liver transplant is, is when you do it for a, a, a child with OTC, you can actually essentially cure the disease. It, it's not like some other diseases where you might have to correct the gene and tissues outside of the target organ or it would be too late 
if you corrected that target organ because there'd be permanent damage outside, you actually could functionally cure the disease. So that makes it a very attractive target for gene therapy and particularly a potential single treatment cure gene therapy like what we are developing. Your OTC therapy is a, an AAV therapy. Where are you in development and what's the path forward? Yes, it is a combination of adeno-associated virus where in, in this case, we're only using the AAV to get the technology that I described earlier, piggyback, into the hepatocytes. In other words, we are putting a DNA transposon, which is the thing delivering your therapeutic transgene inside of an AAV. And that's, that's pretty nice system because when you think about it, that could be extrapolated to anything that AAV has been developed to target. So right now we're targeting the liver, so we use a liver-specific capsid. But if you wanted to target um, other tissues like the muscle or CNS, you could switch the capsid. And basically what you would do to convert any AAV technology in the world into an AAV piggyback technology would be to take what's called a inverted terminal repeat. These are small structural elements at the end of the piggyback transposon that define the transposon. You take those as little as 50 nucleotide inverted terminal repeats or ITRs and you put them inside of the ITRs of the AAV. Now at that point, you have not really changed the way AAV works. If you just injected that, like all other AAV therape therapeutics, it would take you to your target cell or target tissue. It would get you into the cell, but it would not get you integrated into the DNA. And so therefore, it's, it would be transient. And again, if you think about the metabolic liver uh, diseases like OTC, these manifest most severely in the pediatric patient population where you have a rapidly dividing liver. So if you're not integrating, you're going to very rapidly get diluted out. You lose your therapeutic transient expression. So what you've seen some of the AAV companies try to do to compensate for this is stick in more and more AAV, in other words, higher, tighter virus. And unfortunately, that can cause side effects and it can even be fatal. There have been some unfortunate patient deaths in the gene therapy space and clinical holds recently because of high, tighter AAV. The way that piggyback works is you would then deliver the enzyme, and you can do that with a second AAV. It could be the same capsid, but uh, second AAV manufacturing. Or you could now put it in with nanoparticle, and that enzyme will very efficiently grab that therapeutic transgene out of the cytoplasm and integrate it stably into the DNA of, of the cell, now making it a permanent or single treatment uh, cure. So we've already shown this for, for three separate diseases. Two are the urea cycle diseases. One is called uh, OTC, which we're talking about. Another is a gene called ASS, but it's uh, further downstream in the urea cycle pathway. And then the third one is a disease called PFIC3, which is a bile acid transporter. So it works really well in all of those models. Uh, one injection and the animals are, are cured for life. And that, that's the first program uh, that we are putting into the clinic demonstrating the power of AAV plus piggyback for OTC, and we call that uh, POTC 101. Is it coincidental that the 
early programs you've disclosed in gene therapies are all indications where you want to hit the liver. Is there concerns that being able to program this technology to deliver in other parts of the body will be just as effective? No, there there are no concerns, but I I would say that the liver is to a certain extent, lower line fruit, and also for us a real competitive advantage. Because as I mentioned earlier, the other standard technologies, so straight AAV, nanoparticle delivering RNA, this can't touch this population, the most severely affected pediatric patient population. So there's a huge unmet medical need. There's a, a percentage of the population that just can't be treated with other other therapies. And there are some capsids that are, are, are pretty well known to work and be very specific for the hepatocytes in the liver. We have licensed one of those from uh, Marquet's lab at, at Stanford, and, and it works quite well to, to do what it's supposed to do. So having said that, uh, we know that piggyback will integrate into really any tissue, and even we've, we've shown that it can integrate in some non-dividing tissues like muscle, for example. So no reason that you shouldn't be able to switch the capsid and then get this to work in really many different tissues within the body. Now, again, having said that, the long-term goal would be to just get rid of the AAV capsid entirely and switch over to a nanoparticle. And there's some advantages of, of doing that. You are working on a, a nanoparticle delivery technology to free yourself from AAV. Uh, what is this technology and what's the advantage it offers? Yeah, great, great question, Danny. So the advantage of switching to a nanoparticle are actually several fold. You could say, why would you need to improve on a single treatment cure? That's, that's amazing. But there are some reasons to, to think about it. Number one is that AAV has a limited cargo capacity. I mentioned earlier, piggyback does not. Piggyback could deliver very large therapeutic transgenes, but the AAV capsid itself is pretty small. You can only put about 4.5 or so KB into the AAV capsid. By going to a nanoparticle system, you get away from that cargo limitation. And we've already shown we can easily deliver 10 10 kilobases with nanoparticle technology, probably much larger. We, We haven't tried. The other advantages have to do with the immune system. Because viruses have evolved with humans for millions of years, humans have also evolved a lot of mechanisms to keep them out of the body or to eliminate them. And AAV is no exception. So first of all, some patients will have pre-existing immunity against your AAV capsid. And while we have a novel capsid that should be pretty um, unique to most people. Most people would, would not have seen this and don't have antibodies against it. There's still a p- percentage of the patient population that you might not be able to treat effectively because of pre-existing immunity. And then there's another problem, which is once you give an AAV-based therapeutic, you usually create an immune response. And so that can make redosing very difficult or impossible. And then lastly, uh, this might be obvious, but it's just a lot easier to manufacture a nanoparticle. Our nanoparticles are fully biodegradable. They're, they're in a class called lipidoid na- nanoparticle. And so they're fairly easy to make. They have some safety advantages over AAV uh, cost advantages in terms of manufacturing. So all around, if you could just get rid of the AAV entirely, long term, we think that's the best way to go. 
you're actually already using this to develop uh, gene therapy for hemophilia A, notably while it's a somewhat crowded area for gene therapy. It's it's an area where developers have had issues with the cargo size and and also with questions about long-term durability and questions of whether patients would, would need to be redosed. Where are you in development on this and, and what do you see this hemophilia gene therapy comparing to, to what's out there already? Right. Great, great question. And you're, you're absolutely right that one of the advantages I just mentioned was the cargo capacity and, and the transgene therapeutic transgene for hemophilia in the case of hemophilia A is the factor A gene. And that's, that's a large transgene. It's over seven KB and even modified versions are, are over five KB. So it's difficult, if not impossible to get that into a single AAV effectively. But again, with the nanoparticle, that that's not a limitation. So I think it's a perfect disease to prove out this all nanoparticle technology. We already have shown in animal models of OTC that we can um, not need the second virus. We can deliver the enzyme as an RNA with our RNA-based nanoparticle. We've actually developed two flavors of this. We've got the RNA version and we've got the DNA version. And even though they have the same ingredients, if you will, if you put them in different combinations, you can maximize for either DNA encapsulation or RNA encapsulation. And because they're biodegradable, you actually can dose at uh, higher levels and get higher transgene uh, expression ultimately. <clears throat> and you can and you can redose. So that's a big advantage over some of the existing nanoparticles in the space. And we think for RNA delivery, we're already somewhere between 10 to 100 times more effective than competing technologies that have been published. And for DNA delivery, which not too many people do, we're, we're easily 100 times more effective. So what we've done is take the two together, where one is delivering your therapeutic transgene, essentially in a, a piggyback transposon, because it's got those ITRs at the end. And then the other one is as RNA, transiently delivering the enzyme that will move the transposon, i.e. the therapeutic transgene, into the genome. And again, that's permanent. So we've already shown this. We've uh, co-injected the two together. We've shown that you get high-level stable expression. It's across all zones of the liver, and it persists out to at least seven months. We haven't tried longer than that, that but that was our first, the uh, endpoint of our first animal model experiment. So it looks, it looks really good. And it, it just so happens that I did my PhD quite some time ago now, but my, did my PhD in gene therapy at the University of Pennsylvania. I was actually the first graduate from their gene therapy program. And the lab that I worked in, about half the lab was mobile DNA, which includes these uh, DNA transposons. And the other half, interestingly, was factor eight gene therapy. So it's something I've been thinking about and working on for, for basically my entire career. And one of my other colleagues, Denise Sabatino, who is now at CHOP, is uh, one of the world experts in factor eight hemophilia A gene therapy. And we're working with her right now to test this technology in animal models. I think a lot of people, when it comes to gene therapy, will think of rare diseases without any therapeutic options today. Uh, 
hemophilia is a, a, a clotting condition. People don't produce adequate amounts of, of a clotting factor. But from an economic point of view, from a quality of life point of view, it's, to me, a very compelling case for gene therapy. Why focus on hemophilia A, where there are ways to, to treat the disease today? Well, there are. There's, as you mentioned, recombinant or plasma-derived factor eight. Uh, there's now a bispecific antibody that functionally works the same way that your clotting system would. But it's it's difficult and expensive to be constantly covered by a recombinant uh, factor eight. It's a lifestyle issue to, to be constantly needing to get this. Uh, average annual cost is, is somewhere between one to $200,000 per year. You can develop antibodies, or, or in this space, it's called inhibitors, against the recombinant protein, and, and then it becomes difficult to treat these patients. You can try to break that with tolerance, but then that's, that's almost a million dollars a year to try to put in enough uh, recombinant factor eight to, to get tolerized. So, you know, there, there are a lot of compelling arguments, as you say, both from a therapeutic standpoint and also from a, a you know purely a lifestyle standpoint and ultimately i think these treatments if you can really get single treatment cures for for diseases it will extend way beyond metabolic diseases and way beyond the liver you could imagine a scenario where you just get a shot and now your muscle is producing and secreting a protein that you need into the blood supply, whereas right now you might have to come in and get an infusion every eight weeks. Well, now maybe you get, you know, one shot and it lasts 10 years. So, you know, from a quality of life perspective, that, that's a big deal. While there have been some delays in seeing these therapies come to market, hemophilia is a relatively crowded space. Any hesitation to pursue this so early in, in your gene therapy portfolio? Not really, because I do think it's a great proof of concept. It's a, it's a large transgene. And similarly, you can make these arguments that I made for OTC for hemophilia. I mean, ultimately, uh, it's, it is another X-linked disease. It, it, there are severely affected um, patients that are in the pediatric group, and those patients do have a rapidly dividing liver. That liver is normally where you would make this clotting factor and secrete it. So I, I think it's a pretty good test case. And, you know, honestly, once you prove that piggyback can be combined with any AAV capsid for single treatment cures and that you could go to nanoparticle to, to use the same technology for single treatment cures, that's a really val valuable proof of concept that you can extend into many, many other indications and areas. At the same time, does that possibly hold promise for a more accelerated path through development? Uh, yes, and particularly for the nanoparticles, because of some of the issues I talked about earlier, the GMP production of viruses, not uh, particularly easy or fast, and, and maybe even more so now with the pandemic, where a lot of the CMOs have capacity that has been diverted to creating vaccines. It, it can be somewhat time-consuming, but the, the uh, nanoparticle approach is a lot easier and more cost-effective than the viral technologies. And so there, there is a possibility that the, these timelines uh, could be acceler accelerated such that the IND for the all-nanoparticle 
is actually not that far behind the, the IND for the POTC 101, which, by the way, will be next next year. Eric Ostertag, CEO of Poseidon Therapeutics. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.